0: A few people have asked, is the Relevant Parenting Conference more focused on parents of teenagers since we'll be hitting social media and technology? And the answer is no. It's for parents of all generations. We invite grandparents to come as well, youth leaders, as really this conference is a launch of a ministry that we're calling the Relevant Parenting Network. We want to build a community of parents who can rally around each other as we raise the next generation. At the conference, we will have uh, some experts in the field of things such as cybersecurity, and social media monitoring to equip us in raising this generation. But I'll be sharing the vision of this ministry, including we are launching three relevant parenting groups from the conference. So please be here, free conference, uh, March 21st. And you can grab one of these and invite someone who's a parent uh, in your community in the lobby. So last week, uh, Ron wrapped up a three-part mini-series in our First Corinthians study on real sex. And Ron did not hold back on the issues we saw in 1 Corinthians and in our culture today. So I was thinking this week, how in the world do I follow up that? I figure most of you are in one or two camps. You are thinking today, I am so glad that's over. So no matter what I talk about, you're all in. You're all in. Or or you might be the one who can't stop thinking about that series, that you're not going to pay attention no matter what. I hope you're in the latter, but uh, today uh, we're going to hit pause in our First Corinthians series. Next week I'll be leading us into our next section of First Corinthians. But today we're going to do something uh, that we called in the fall "Big Questions from Corinth." We said uh, in the fall, it's good that when you're knee deep in a book, that at times we need to zoom out and understand themes that we see in a letter. Uh, In the fall, we looked at a big question that was entitled, how do I keep my sin nature in check? Sermon on the website if you missed that one. Today, we're going to address another major issue we see in this letter on this word unity. And here's the question for us today. How can a local church guard their unity. We saw in 1 Corinthians, we continue to see that the church in Corinth was plagued with divisions. They were divided on church leadership, divided on marriage, as we saw the last three weeks, uh, divided on, on God's view of sexuality. As we'll see next week, they even took each other to court, and they were even divided on how to properly administer communion, the Lord's Supper. As sinners saved by grace... Church division can strike at any moment in a local church. We praise God for his faithfulness that the Bible Chapel has existed for over 50 years. And the question is, how will we go about going another 50 years? When you try to think of churches who have been around for over 100 years, it's hard to think of many local churches who have lasted that long of a time. So how do we guard our unity? So the generations to come after us will benefit the same way we have as a local church. Today, we're going to look at a passage in Scripture that I believe gives us the foundation of our unity. We're going to see God's role in guarding our unity and what's our role to guard our unity. So let's pray before we jump into God's Word. Father, we thank you for today. Uh, God, we praise you as we just uh, sang that the Lord is in this place. And, and there's no better way to unify as a local church than each, each weekend coming together to study your word together. And we always say we want to hear from you alone. So, Father, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. So, yesterday marked the 40th anniversary of this Moment in history. Check this out. Get a piece of it to sweep it away. 28 seconds. The crowd going insane. Carloman shooting it into the American end again. Morrow is back there. Now Johnson. 19 seconds. Johnson over to Ramsey. Will you let off? Gets checked by Ramsey. McClanahan is there. The puck is still loose. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow. Up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you over. believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable. The famous quote. Yeah, you can clap. That's pretty cool. So the famous Al Michaels quote, do you believe in miracles made that moment in history forever be known as what? The Miracle on Ice. How many of you remember watching the original broadcast or where you were when the news broke that the U.S. beat the Soviets? How many remember? Very cool. Like everyone else under 40 years old in this room, I don't because I wasn't born yet. So I don't remember (laughs) that moment. I did watch the movie Miracle, and it was really cool. But I think everyone has heard of that moment. So... Entering into the 1980 Winter Olympic Games, the Soviet Union was an unstoppable machine. They had won every gold medal since the 1960 Games, and they were known around the world as the Big Red Title Wave, best team in hockey history. Most teams had amateurs during that day playing, but they were trained professionals. They practiced year-round and been together for a decade. And during this period in history, Tensions were high between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. President Carter, right right before the Winter Games, said we were going to boycott the Summer Games because the Soviets had just invaded Afghanistan. And as a country, we had a lot going on. We had a major recession happening, and we also had the Iran hostage crisis going on. So, So as a country, we were desperate for something to celebrate, which elevated this game beyond just sports. So, with less than a year before the 1980 games, coach Herb Brooks brought a bunch of talented young amateur hockey players together from rival schools, and they basically hated each other. During practice, fights would often break out, and over the next year, Brooks would put them through such a physical toil. He said two things Uh, they have to be in the best shape possible, even to compete at the games. And he said, you know what? I actually hope that their animosity towards me causes them finally to unite. Brooks would often ask the players in practices, who are you and who do you play for? He would always get answers such as, I am Mark Johnson and I play for the University of Wisconsin. He was dealing with a bunch of self-focused young amateurs. Finally, towards the end of their training, they played an exhibition game against Norway. Brooks was so dissatisfied with their effort, he called a timeout and said, you know what, boys, if you don't want to skate hard during the game, we'll just do it after the game. As they were headed to the locker room, he blew his whistle and said, get back on the ice. For an hour, they did what were called Herbies, suicides, up and down the the rink. The custodian said, coach, I want to go home. Coach said, give me the keys. Custodian shut the lights off and they literally kept doing Herbies in darkness. Finally, Finally, this moment happened, which changed the course of their team. Check this moment out. Everybody get on that line. Hey. Again. Again. Come on, Craig, go to it Again. Michael Ruzzioni! We're through Massachusetts! <laughs> Who do you play for? Play for the United States of America! That's all, gentlemen. Mike Iruzioni, good old Italian boy. He would later be named team captain, and he was the first one in that moment to say, I don't play for my school, no, I play for the United States of America. The team forged a union, put away their division, and although they were ranked seventh out of 12 teams and picked not even to medal, they entered into the Olympics a forged team, one unit. That unity propelled them not only to shock the world by defeating the soviets 4 to 3 in the semifinals but to win the gold 2 days later 4 to 2 over finland the power of unity individuals putting away division and coming together for a greater purpose open your bibles to ephesians chapter 4 if you have your bible app open it up to ephesians chapter 4 Here at the Bible Chapel, we've been saying one of our strategic goals is to build an Ephesians 4 culture. That means we want to be a a body of Christ where every believer knows how they're wired, know how they're gifted, and together we are building up one another to build up the church of Jesus Christ. We call this an E412 culture. That's because in verse 12, we read these words. Verse 11 and 12 says this, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip. The saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, before we can get there, that visible union where everyone knows the role, and we see that in our church, Paul at the beginning of this chapter shares the foundation of our unity. And that unity has less to do with programming the things we do, and it's all about the attitude and position of our hearts. If we're really going to be a church that guards our unity. So here we go. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, our focus this morning. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one, with one another in love. That word, therefore, at the beginning of this chapter is the transition point in this letter for Paul. The first three chapters were all about theology. He reminded the church in Ephesus of who they are in Christ and what's that solid doctrine that they stand upon. The remainder of the letter is all about Christian practice. He's going to talk about, okay, church, it's time to live this out. And in order to do so, in verse 1, He gives them an understanding of what a healthy church looks like when it comes to doctrine and practice. Look at verse 1. Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Any uh, math people out there, I was a math major at Grove City, we would get excited about the word worthy. The original Greek is axios. We get our English word axiom from it. It means to be of equal weight. If you're in algebra, any students here are, there's a thing called symmetric axioms. That means if A equals B, then B also equals A. Here's what Paul is saying He's saying, Church, your theology needs to equal the weight of your practice. Don't be lopsided one way or the other. Don't be theology greater than practice. Many local churches have solid theology, doctrine spot-on to God's Word, yet they rarely practice what they believe. They can quote every biblical passage on evangelism and discipleship, yet we see no church growth. They are not putting into practice what they believe. Their axiom is off. Then there are some churches where they put more emphasis on practice than theology, These churches, young people, watch for these churches. They will wow you with charismatic music and amazing, captivating messages, but peel away at their theology what's being said from the pulpit. Are they truly teaching the full counsel of God's word? When when the culture changes in our pluralistic culture, will they stand firm on the word of God or will they shift their belief with culture? Those who put more emphasis on practice than theology, your your axiom is off. Paul says a solid local church begins with one whose solid theology is equal to their sound practice. Now, I don't worry about the commitment of the Bible Chapel to God's word, our sound theology. We've been that way for over 50 years. But what about our practice? How do we keep this union We're we're committed together to practice what we believe so we can have another 50 years of developing followers of Jesus Christ together. In the the middle of this verse, uh, this section, we we get kind of the linchpin of our role and God's role in this unity. But let's first look at God's role starting in verse 3. Go back to verse 3. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. For a moment, look around you. Look who's in your pew, behind you, in front of you. Go ahead, look around. It's okay. Might be a little awkward, but go ahead. I love you all. We love one another, right? But let's be honest. If it wasn't for the Lord, would we most likely hang out together? The beauty of the church, he takes different people who typically in the world would not associate with one another. One person last week, one of our staff says, they looked at our our congregation and said, it's so cool that we're a multi-generational church. We have children and youth worshiping with adults of all ages. That's the work of God alone. Paul says, it's the unity of the Spirit who takes people who are so different and unites them under the headship of Jesus Christ. That's the first part of God's role. Never forget God alone is the source of our unity. God never commands the church to create unity. He does that. He's the source of our unity. Living grounded, small groups, upward sports, men's and women's ministry, children's ministry, student ministry, those are all ways that, that we together can grow together, have community together, care for one another, and reach the lost, but we can never forget that God alone is the source of our unity. That's because when an individual trusts in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, Scripture says the spirit of the living God takes up permanent residence in your heart. And God alone, by the power of his spirit, takes one, as we'll see later, as an alien of God and draws them in as a son and daughter of the living God. And you become part of God's family. God does that. God alone. That's why I love, think about our campuses, South Hills, Wilkins, Ross Draver, DeBerry, Robinson, Washington. Just think of the different demographics. Only God could take people of different race, language, nationality, economic classes, and unite us together as one. God's the source of our unity. And I love how Paul describes how the Trinity, how our one God, distinctly in three persons, works in perfect harmony to form our unity. In verses 4 through 6, look at verse 4. He says, there is one body and one spirit. We see the person of the spirit of God as the orchestrator of our union. Like I said, when you trust in Jesus, the Spirit of God indwells within you and draws you into the family of God. And then the Spirit of God, as we read in Scripture, He's the one who who distributes all our gifts, our spiritual gifts. Every believer has a gift, and He uses those gifts together in a local church to form a union that we can be fully effective, not as individuals, but as a whole. And then we see the son in verses end of verse 4 and verse 5. He says, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call in one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The one Lord here is Jesus. Jesus is the head of our church. No man or person, he's the head of our church. And he creates, as Paul says, one faith, meaning he is the sole object and focus of our faith. There is salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ, one faith. And he says, he gives us also this, this one baptism. By one baptism, most people uh, believe Paul's referring to water baptism, that act of obedience where we give a visual demonstration to our church body. That's why it's important. This is not only a step of obedience for an individual when they get baptized, but it's a demonstration of our unity together in the body of Christ. If you've never taken that step of obedience, mark down May 31st, our next celebration weekend. We encourage you to take that step of obedience. And he also says we have one hope in our one Lord. We have an eternal hope because if you trusted in Jesus, you're secure in him for eternity. And we have the one hope in Christ that he will return one day to make all things new. And then in verse 6, he, he completes that picture of the Trinity when he says, "In one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I don't know everyone's story here or what your relationship is like with your earthly father. But Paul says, despite all our differences, believers have the same heavenly father who loves you. He is over us. He works through us. He is in us. Bottom line, Paul is saying, because of God, we're family. We're family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we stand amazed at the work of God in our union, he's not only the source of our union, he's also the sustainer. That's the second rule in this text. God is the sustainer of our eternal unity. Just as a believer can never lose their salvation, if you have trusted in Christ, you can never truly detach yourself from the church. Sure, you can live in silo and not be connected to the local body, but you're still part of the body of Christ. You are eternally part of the body of Christ. You will always be a child of God. And... Scripture shows us the importance of being connected in community in a local church. A believer, I believe according to Scripture, cannot be fully effective unless they work in unison with other believers. We live in a day where commitment to a local church is dwindling. Younger generations, you're being told more and more be open minded. Be individualistic, don't commit to truth. Don't commit to things. be open. Yet studies show that those these days that church hop, instead of planting roots in a local church with what Barna group calls membership, that would be becoming a member or being a consistent regular attender in a church, that hurts your spiritual growth. State of the Church 2020 is what Barna Group has been studying over the last few years. And in those studies, they released something recently that they have called the five trends today that define Americans' relationships with local churches. They list five major points in their study of what they're seeing in the trends of today. Here's just two of them connected to our text They say nearly two in five churchgoers report regularly attending multiple churches. That means 40% of those here today aren't uh, saying, this is my local church. You probably attend other local churches as well. Second thing they say in this study is that church membership, although it's still common practice and it's correlated with positive outcomes, its importance is declining with younger churchgoers. I'm using this not to strong arm anyone today and to sign up for membership here at the Bible Chapel. That's not the mode. But I am telling you, in Scripture and what we see, planting roots in a local church is important to your spiritual growth. I r- encourage you, go read the article this week. Don't do it right now. Stay with us here. But they list a bunch of statistics from their study over the past year, and here's just two of them. They say those who are members, meaning committed to a local church, are 23% more likely to attend services regular than non-members. And they say that 22% of members are more likely to read their Bible than those who church hop. After listing these statistics, David Kinnaman, president of Barna, said this, Americans aren't joining much of anything these days, and church membership is not as compelling as it once was. In a world of untethered commitments and free-for-all content, the positive correlations of church membership, though, should not be overlooked. The form of membership might be undergoing change, but the function of generating a mutually committed group of people, I love that phrase, a mutually committed group of people is still relevant to today's Americans. Going back to what Paul uses often to... Give us a visual of a local church, the body of Christ. It just makes sense. If you're a believer, you're part of the body. If you're the hand, you can live in Silo and not be connected to the local church, and we would still be able to tell by the way you live and what you profess that you're a believer. You're part of the body. But if you're not connected to the forearm, the elbow, the shoulder, the nerve endings to your brain, how in the world are you going to function fully the way God calls you to? The body of Christ, believers, we were designed to work together, to fully operate in unison for whom God calls us to be. So, with that in mind, that God is the source and sustainer of our unity, the importance of commitment to one another, well, when we are committed to one another, how do we guard our unity? Let's turn to our role now. Going back to that main verse of our text today, verse 3, go back to verse 3. Paul says, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That word maintain more literally means to protect or guard. Remember, God alone creates our unity. Our role is to guard it and nurture it. The word eager represents diligence and zealous effort. Paul is basically saying this is an important thing, church. Be zealous and diligent in guarding your unity as a local church. And Paul gives us several instructions on how we are to have a foundation of guarding that unity. And again, really has nothing to do with programming. Everything to do with the attitude and position of our hearts. Bracketing that command to to be eager to maintain are a couple principles he gives us. Back to verse two. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Humility. Humility was so countercultural in the first century. In the Roman Greco world, it was despised to want to be humble. Actually, they they would say that's a slave-like quality. What was exalted was self-sufficiency. I don't need anyone. I own my life in pride. But Paul exalts humility. In those who are humble, he, 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 he brings gentleness with it. In Scripture, we often see it as meekness. And Paul says, humility and gentleness, no, they don't represent weakness. It's rather strength under control. So what's our role? Number one, in our hearts, when we walk in here together, may we daily humble ourselves before God and one another. It's amazing, isn't it, how biblical principles work in every area of life. CEOs, business HR firms, they keep saying people need to start looking more for humble leaders more than anything else. Forbes magazine last year wrote an article entitled Why Humble Leaders Make the Best Leaders. And here's what they say A number of research studies have concluded that humble leaders listen more effectively, they inspire great teamwork, and focus everyone, including themselves, on organizational goals better than leaders who don't score high on humility. End of the article. The bottom line, we tend to be impressed by charismatic candidates with powerful personalities and a commanding presence. My advice, dig deeper. Your gut reaction is often wrong. Search for quiet confidence, humility, and a focus on others. That's where great leadership begins. Jesus was as tough a leader you will find. And he said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, I am gentle and I am lowly or humble in heart. Jesus' focus on others, his humility, his servant leadership made him a magnet for others to follow. Following that example of Christ, I was thinking this week, every time we enter into community, we come together. There's two ways to view Our association with one another. Two simple questions we should ask ourselves, and they're very different. Which one fits you right now when you walk through the doors? When you come in, do you say, How can my church serve me this week? Or when we walk in, do we say, How can I serve our church this week? It's all about the body. A humble believer is one who also serves in a manner that you want no praise. Actually, we withdraw when we receive praise because all deflection goes to the Lord. Thinking about Team USA, man, the church should be the greatest model of the power of unity. Church first. Church body first. Not about me. It's about Jesus Christ and serving my brothers and sisters. Paul says, be humble. Gentle towards one another. And then, continuing in verse two, he says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. This might be the, the harder, the hardest part of this in our hearts as human beings. Patience here means long tempered, it means don't have a short fuse towards your brothers and sisters. Remember, I said we're family. I grew up in a large Italian family. Not having a short fuse, that's hard. Therefore, as a family, at times we're going to annoy one another. We're going to disagree with one another. And we may sin against one another. The word to bear means to endure, it denotes the position of a believer. That when another believer has wronged you, you have the power to retaliate, but you endure that temptation and hold back. The characteristic of one who is patient and forgiving towards one another. Why? Because you know that builds up our unity. Paul says that's real love in a local church. Our role, Paul also says, be patient and forgiving to one another. I've been in in meetings uh, many times where individuals come together and they say they want to reconcile with each other, and I'm thankful for that. So they come together, and it doesn't take long to figure out who wronged who in the conversation. So I ask the person who feels like they've been wronged by their brother or sister, I say, have you forgiven them? And they say, yes, I have forgiven them. And within a few moments, we continue to talk, and right again, they bring up all the stuff that person did to them. And I say, Stop, we need to go back. Stop, we need to go back. You have not forgiven your brother, you have not forgiven your sister in Christ. We do it differently in the church, we have a different level of unity. How are we called to forgive one another? further on in Ephesians 4 Paul says in verse 32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you not a suggestion but a command this whole chapter's on unity forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us well give me a picture of how God forgave us Hebrews 8:12 I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more Say that phrase with us together, everyone together, ready? I will remember their sins no more. Church unity sounds awesome, and it's hard work. When you forgive your brother and sister, you will be tempted at times to bring up what they did, not always towards them, but maybe to someone else, sowing seeds of division instead of unity. If right now you need to forgive someone in our church body, I am asking you for yourself, your heart and your position and your relationship with the Lord, but also for your commitment to unity here, address it. Do it in person, not email or text. If you need help to get there, reach out to a brother and sister. And when you forgive that individual, stop bringing up what they did. And definitely don't gossip about it. One more, end of verse three. Not only humility and gentleness and forgiveness, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Outside of Paul's long letter to the church in Rome, uh, his epistle here in Ephesians mentions the word peace more than any other letter that he wrote. He's writing about unity. And he says that being a peacemaker is so critical to guarding our unity. Peacemakers are not ones who shove issues under the rug. Instead, they're the ones who actually address issues when they come up appropriately. The third role, we see this within our hearts to guard our unity, is that when conflict arises, and it will, be one who is honest and selfless as a peacemaker. We admit when we're at odds with one another, we're willing to risk discomfort because when you are going to be a peacemaker in the situation, you're risking maybe failure, it doesn't work out on the other individual, and rejection. But we're willing to do that because we're not gonna pretend things are okay when they're not. And when we seek peace, we have the other's best interests and in mind as Paul said in Romans 14 19 let us pursue what makes peace for the mutual upbuilding, right the building up of one another in the church a peacemaker even when they think that person's 100% in the wrong and I had no part of it will own their side first and they will selflessly enter that peacemaking moment to restore their brother and sister because it's all about peace not the vision. As we wrap up, simple yet rich six verses where Paul says, but before you go be that E412 culture, check your heart. May the Bible chapel be next 50 years a church that is balanced in our theology and practice. We know that God is the source of our unity. We know he's going to sustain our unity. But how can we approach every day together in community? May we humble ourselves before God and one another. It's about church body first. Be patient and forgiving towards one another. And in every situation, seek peace, restoration, reconciliation for the mutual upbuilding of our church. I'm going to ask that you stand as I'm going to, uh, Read a test. Go ahead and stand if you're able. And before we sing in unity, I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2. Because remember, Paul turns the corner in chapter 4. He says, it's your turn to practice this. But before he did that, he went to sound doctrine in chapter 2 and made sure they understood in Ephesus, never forget where our peace, where our unity where that foundation resides. He said this in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 17. And he, Jesus, he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were in here. Never forget you were dead in your sins, he says earlier in the chapter, you had no way to the living God, but Jesus alone preached peace to your soul. He's the one who gives you everlasting peace. For through him, Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father. That work of the Trinity, right? Because of the work of Christ, the spirit of God lives within us. And we now have full access to the Father. He says, so then you're no longer a strajan. You're not an alien to God. No, no, no. You are a fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God. We are one church family together. built." on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the early church. But don't forget, it's Jesus Christ who's the cornerstone of our unity. In Christ, the whole structure, all of us together. Man, when we're we're joined together, I love this, Paul says, we will grow into that holy temple unto the Lord. Let's sing together, praising God for our cornerstone in Christ.